Strangers, have you heard? Obsessed Fest is coming back. Last year's Obsessed Fest was so epic, and this year is going to be even more epicer. New true crime podcasters are being added to the lineup all the time. You can keep up with the planning and check out highlights from last year at the Obsessed Fest Instagram account. There's going to be live shows, panels, games, karaoke, Q&As, meet and greets, cocktail hours, and merch, merch, merch. And in case you didn't know, it's not just Obsessed Network shows. We've got the best true crime podcasters from all over the world joining us for one incredible weekend. So make sure you get your tickets and book your hotel room now at ObsessedFest.com and join us October 20th through the 22nd at the Omni in Dallas, Texas. I can't wait to see you there. You know how we usually start these episodes with questions? Well, that was the only one, because it's no great revelation to point out that there is a huge coverage gap in the media when it comes to missing women. Do a quick scan of Netflix true crime documentaries and you'll see thumbnail after thumbnail of pretty white women. One might think, after seeing this, that white women are most in danger of being kidnapped, hurt, or killed. But the statistics tell a different story. Why does our culture seem so horrified and fascinated by one story, yet wholly indifferent to the other? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I wouldn't quite call myself a true crime enthusiast because honestly, that's a little gross. And also life is scary enough without being steeped in every case of someone doing something awful to someone else. I'm more of a true crime dabbler and one who prefers that a decade or two has passed before digging into a story. Today's story takes place way back in the olden days of the late 1980s, when a young woman vanished after a night out with friends. The case of Alberta Williams remains unsolved. Strangers, I am so excited to tell you that today is the official launch of our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you will have access to three bonus episodes a month. These episodes will be about 15 to 20 minutes long, giving you more of the kind of strange and unexplained content you love. We've got killer clowns, people in comas who are aware of everything the whole time, massive child sex trafficking conspiracies, and some more autobiographical content. What more could you possibly need? For $7 a month, you will be getting all of that plus ad-free versions of the regular episodes. Plus, we're putting together a fully produced and edited video of the Strange and Unexplained live show, which we'll release exclusively to Patreon members. The first two episodes are available right now. To join, go to patreon.com slash strangeandunexplained. Stick around at the end of today's episode for a preview of the first episode, Succumb to the Mysteries of Sleep Paralysis. Alberta Gail Williams was born on February 20th, 1965, in Gitanyao, British Columbia. Alberta was a member of the Gitxan tribe along with her parents, Rena and Lawrence, her sisters Claudia, Kathy, Pam, Martha, and Karen, and her brothers Francis, Herman, and Kevin, as well as their large extended family. 
Rena and Lawrence worked a variety of seasonal jobs, traveling with the children during spring break and summer vacation to find work. Rena worked in a local cannery while Lawrence worked as a fisherman, marine mechanic, and airport bus driver, in addition to owning his own trucking company, L. Williams & Sons Trucking Limited. Alberta's oldest sister, Claudia, said of their mother, Our mother was self-taught in so many ways. She learned how to knit, crochet, sew, bake, and so much more, which she taught all her daughters. She taught her daughters the importance of how to become respectable women through love, patience, forgiveness, and honesty. When Claudia finished school, she moved to Vancouver. Rena and Lawrence sent each of their children to live with Claudia in order to get a better high school education than their small town could offer. The kids continued traveling for seasonal work, heading up to the town of Prince Rupert to work in a salmon cannery where the money was good enough that after just a couple months' work, they could head back to Vancouver. In 1989, Alberta was engaged and living in Vancouver with her partner Dave. Alberta was small, five foot one and no more than 110 pounds. Her loved ones described her as a kind, loving, and gentle person. Claudia would later tell the CBC podcast Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams, that Alberta was... Fun. A lot of fun. She never took anything serious. She's so much fun. Even if someone pissed her off, she just shrugged it off. That's the way she is. She shrugged it off. She was... She was just very caring. Alberta's childhood friend Geraldine Morrison told the CBC podcast... When we were younger, she used to always talk about traveling, getting away from the small villages, just travel. We used to talk about being nurses. She was so kind-hearted. She had a lot of empathy with her. That summer of 1989, as usual, Claudia and Alberta went up to Prince Rupert for work. Prince Rupert, as described by now-retired Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer Gary Kerr, was... A crazy town at the time. It was extremely busy. It was just a crazy, wild place. Alberta stayed with her parents while she was working there and was reportedly excited to get back to Vancouver and marry Dave, who had stayed behind there while she was in Prince Rupert for the summer. August 25th was Alberta's last day of work for the season at the cannery, and she wanted to go out that night to celebrate. Alberta and Claudia planned to meet up at the popular bar Bogie's Cabaret on 2nd Avenue West, which was on the route Highway 16 took through town. Claudia didn't really want to go out, but decided to meet up with her sister a little later. By the time Claudia got to the bar, she later told the official inquiry, Alberta was sitting at the end of the table. Jack Little to her right, and others that I recall were Kevin Kitchen, Kara Russell, Gordon McLean, Phoebe Russell, Alfonso Little. I did not sit with them because there was no room, and I wasn't too comfortable with that particular group of friends. So I decided to mingle around, listen to music, and say hi to people I knew, but I kept going back to the table to see how Alberta and everyone was doing. There wasn't anything peculiar about that night. But now I recall Alberta never got up once to come see me, nor did she leave the table. Everybody was in bogeys, you know, table full of people, probably a couple of tables pulled together. I knew everybody at that table, so does she. And it was quite packed at that table. 
And I thought, well, you know what? They're already ahead of the game. I mean, they're laughing. Once the bar had closed, the group stood outside game planning for what to do next. Claudia later told the official inquiry that it was then, outside the bar, standing about three feet away from Claudia, that Alberta said, Claudia, come to a party. We're going to Jack's place. Jack was Jack Little, an uncle through marriage. Claudia reminded Alberta that they had to get back to Vancouver and told the CBC podcast that Alberta begged, Come with us, come with us. We're going to a party. And she told me where the party was. She said who was hosting the party. Claudia told the official inquiry that while she was having this back and forth with Alberta, To my right, Wayne Benson called me. Claudia, I need to talk to you. I turned to Alberta, asked her to wait. Again, Wayne, Claudia, I need to talk to you. I turned to Alberta. She was gone. And so were all the friends. They left very quickly. I was shocked because Alberta would never leave me in this way. I turned to my right. Wayne Benson was gone, too. She told the CBC podcast. I turned around, and in that short a time, she was gone. Gone. Claudia told the inquiry that she ran back into the bar to see if maybe Alberta had gone back in to use the restroom. She called out for Alberta in the bathroom and checked under the stall doors, but Alberta wasn't there. She told the inquiry. I went back to the corner of the bogey where I lost Alberta. I waited for at least an hour and a half. She didn't return. It was the very last time I seen Alberta. After waiting for her sister outside the bar for more than an hour, Claudia convinced herself that Alberta was with friends and was probably safe. That's what it was like before cell phones. If you didn't know where someone was or they were out in the world somewhere, you were SOL if you needed to get in touch with them. Back in those days, people used to do this thing called making plans ahead of time. It was wild. The next morning, August 26th, when Alberta's mother, Rena, woke up to find Alberta hadn't come home, she called Claudia. Claudia assured her that Alberta had probably had a little too much to drink at a friend's house and decided to spend the night there. By that afternoon, Rena was really worried. She called her husband to say Alberta hadn't come home. Whether it was naivete or an overdeveloped sense of optimism, Lawrence said he was sure Alberta would turn up and everything would be fine. To be fair, it hadn't yet been 24 hours and Alberta was an adult, but one would think she would have at least called by then. When Alberta's brother Francis and their father Lawrence arrived back in Prince Rupert the following day and Alberta had still not been heard from, Rena and Lawrence went down to the local precinct and filed a missing persons report. Officer Gary Kerr was the officer assigned to her case, and while, according to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, most missing persons at the time were found safe within 24 hours, if not one week, concerns were heightened. Detective Kerr told the CBC podcast, I mean, people were reported missing all the time, and the more we dug into it, it it was, you know, something wasn't adding up. From never having met Alberta in person, it was apparent very, very quickly that this was completely out of character for her. Everybody we talked to said she was, you know, responsible. Uh, She'd never been a runaway. Uh, There was no history of drug abuse from what I can remember. She wasn't a heavy drinker by any stretch. It was just sort of all these things kind of put together raised those flags. It was absolutely out of character. 
Both police and Alberta's loved ones started calling around to people Alberta had been seen with that night at Bogies. Kerr said, You have to start someplace, and where you start is at the beginning. And you go from A to B to C. You don't go from A to Z and jump back to whatever. So, so you start So you start with the people she was last seen with. To me, this is like basic police work, and that's where you start. Um, and from interviewing the number of people we did, and again, that was family, that was friends, that was the bar staff that night. Despite this being basic police work, for some reason, Kerr didn't interview Jack Little until almost two weeks after Alberta was last seen. Little, you'll remember, was Alberta's uncle by marriage, and it was his house that Alberta said they were going to after the bar. That seems like that would be the first call you'd make, no? It also seems that Kerr didn't know about the party at Little's house the night Alberta went missing. I honestly don't know how this is possible. Why hadn't he gotten that information from Claudia when her parents filed the missing persons report? Even more confusing, once Kerr found out about the party, he went and interviewed Little's neighbors? According to his own notes, a neighbor of Little's had been home, quote, last Friday night, meaning Friday, August 25th, the morning of the 26th, when Alberta left Bogie's bar. Apparently, a neighbor told Kerr it was weird that Little had his blinds closed all the time now, and yet Kerr still didn't interview Little until September 7th? Listen, I'm no Canadian-mounted royal police officer, but this is, in the words of Joey Tribbiani from Friends, mind-bottling. According to Kerr's notes of his interview with Little, Little seemed, quote, very nervous, almost scared, end quote. He apparently kept putting his head in his hands and repeatedly said he had a bad memory. He said he, quote, couldn't think right now, end quote, and couldn't remember the names of the people he'd been at Bogie's bar with that night. And then, apparently, Little claimed a psychic had called his wife's family to say, Detective Kerr's notes read, She felt there was a lot of confusion, and she feels the situation has gone from bad to worse. Uh, she feels there may have been an accident, feels Alberta could be around Terrace, Smithers, or Prince George. Said that after the long weekend that everything would be okay and that Alberta was heading to Vancouver. Why the psychic called Little's wife's family, I have no idea. Seems to me if you're a psychic who has purportedly received a message from the great beyond or whatever, you should be calling the police, or at the very least, the missing person's family. Definitely not the family of a wife of a man who claims not to have been involved in the person's disappearance. Like, let's say, for the sake of trying to make this make sense, that the psychic happened to be friends with Little's mother-in-law or something and called her to be like, I just got a message about your niece. Because remember, Little was Alberta's uncle by marriage. Like, let's say that happened, right? Wouldn't someone have called the police right away to be like, hey, we got a call from this psychic? Look, I don't necessarily believe in psychics, which is not to say I don't rule out the possibility of people sometimes getting weird info from I don't know where in the ether or whatever. But if someone I knew was missing and someone who called themselves a psychic called to be like, I know what happened, I'd tell the police, you know? Despite not being able to think or remember anything, Little did tell police he believed he saw Alberta the night she went missing sitting in a pickup truck with a white guy with blonde hair. 
Police never found a truck or person matching Little's description, which is actually fucking incredible. Like, they couldn't find a white guy with blonde hair who drove a pickup truck in Canada? I haven't spent a lot of time in Canada, and sure, we're talking about an area generally populated by indigenous people, but I'm pretty sure that pretty much anywhere in Canada, you can't throw a rock without hitting a pickup truck owned by a white guy with blonde hair. As time wore on, Claudia says, her parents got increasingly worried. Claudia, though, tried to remain pragmatic and put whatever clues she could find together. She told the podcast, I needed more time to process everything and to find out and retract the steps. Where did everybody go and who left and where everybody left? I didn't have all that information. Detective Kerr, for his part, was pretty sure that whatever happened to Alberta, it wasn't good. And indeed, on September 16th, a family out hiking discovered a body partially covered by debris in a boggy area near Highway 16. In truth, a little kid found her body. Apparently, he called his parents over because he didn't know what it was. Thank God. Although Detective Kerr told the CBC podcast, You know right away. Soon as you look at it, you know it's a human body. But it was, the body was face down in this trench, if you will. And there had been a bunch of debris and stuff placed over the body. Let's hope he meant you as in a seasoned officer of the law and not a child. At any rate, the body was, indeed and unfortunately, Alberta Williams. I would imagine that Alberta's family had probably already suspected that Alberta was dead. I would also imagine that given the number of indigenous women who go missing or are murdered in Canada each year and the police's poor record of finding these women or solving their murders, Alberta's family probably didn't have a ton of faith that Alberta would ever find justice. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police's unofficial motto is We Always Get Our Man, which is tremendously ironic when you consider that so many Indigenous women and girls have gone missing that it is considered a human rights crisis. According to a piece from 2017 on the Canadian Encyclopedia website titled Missing and Murdered Women and Girls in Canada, quote, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in Canada, MMIWG, refers to a human rights crisis that has only recently become a topic of discussion within national media. Indigenous women and communities, women's groups, and international organizations have long called for action into the high and disproportionate rates of violence and the appalling numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Described by some as a hidden crisis, Don Lavelle Harvard, former president of the Native Women's Association of Canada, refers to MMIWG as a national tragedy and a national shame. End quote. And while the total number of missing or murdered Indigenous girls and women is disputed, the RCMP themselves issued a report in 2014 that put the number at, quote, more than 1,200, end quote, between 1980 and 2012. That's a lot of people. That's more than 35 women a year. But some Indigenous women's groups believe the number to be much higher, possibly over 4,000 in that 34-year period. According to the piece on the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, 
The confusion about the numbers has to do with the underreporting of violence against indigenous women and girls and the lack of an effective database, as well as the failure to identify such cases by ethnicity, end quote. I would also argue, as a layperson who pays attention, that the underreporting may have to do with a general lack of concern or reporting in the media of a population that has been the target of genocide in one form or another for centuries. The highway that Alberta's body was found on has the dubious nickname Highway of Tears, specifically because of how many women have been found dead and dumped along it. Once again, the RCMP and indigenous groups who track these numbers disagree on how many women, particularly indigenous women, have been found along Highway 16 and neighboring highways. The RCMP says that between 1969 and 2006, 18 women were found dead along highways 16, 97, and 5 in British Columbia, 10 of whom were indigenous. Indigenous groups, however, say the number of dead indigenous women in northern British Columbia is likely closer to 40. I will admit this is a little confusing because it sounds to me like the RCMP is quoting stats from one geographic area and the indigenous groups are including other areas in their stats. But disregardless, whether we're talking about one part of an area or a region as a whole, 10 out of 18 women is almost a 2 to 1 ratio of indigenous to white women murdered. And of course, 40 is staggering. In fact, the ratio is even greater when you look at Canada as a whole. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia piece, quote, indigenous women 15 years and older were 3.5 times more likely to experience violence than non-indigenous women, according to the 2004 General Social Survey. Violence against indigenous women and girls is not only more frequent, but also more severe. Between 1997 and 2000, the homicide rate for indigenous women was nearly seven times higher than the rate for non-indigenous women, end quote. And as for British Columbia specifically, the piece on Canadian Encyclopedia says, quote, according to Human Rights Watch, an international non-governmental organization that conducts research and advocacy on human rights, British Columbia has the highest rate of unsolved murders of indigenous women and girls in Canada, end quote. So I think it's fair to say that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police only sometimes get their man, especially in British Columbia and especially where missing and murdered Indigenous women are concerned. Detective Gary Kerr told the CBC podcast Missing and Murdered Who Killed Alberta Williams that the area where Alberta's body was discovered was, quote, meticulously examined, end quote, in the days following the discovery of her body. And there was a fair amount of forensic evidence seized at the time. It was obvious uh, to me and my partner that there had been, I would say, a very violent struggle at that location. And, and the reason we came to that conclusion, again, is because of what was found at the location. Uh, like, two and two was adding up to four pretty quick in terms of was she sexually assaulted? I mean, I can't say conclusively, but my... If it was just my opinion, absolutely without question. Horrendously. The autopsy apparently revealed things that Kerr was reluctant to divulge even all these years later when interviewed for the CBC podcast. I'm assuming that's because there are details that only the killer or killers would know, so making them public would hinder the investigation. 
He did reveal, however, that there was something they found during the autopsy that was unique. I have no idea what that means. And while he can't reveal the manner of her death, he was able to definitively say that she was murdered. What I can say is she was murdered. Absolutely no question. You know, she was a victim of a homicide. She was killed. She died a horrible death. I mean, it is... <sighs> There's no way to minimize it. It's... It's horrible. And... Everything from the investigation does suggest that she was killed that night. There's absolutely nothing to suggest that she was went to Vancouver for the week or something and then came back. What the investigators lacked at the time, however, was access to DNA forensics. That technology was in its infancy in the late 80s and wasn't yet commonly used in police work. So all they could go on was physical evidence and anything they might be able to glean from family, friends, and whoever she might have been with the night she went missing. But even without much physical evidence, and even with people not coughing up a lot of info, Kerr's suspicions were narrowing in on one man in particular. Alberta's uncle by marriage, Jack, I don't remember anything except this one generic detail that won't actually pan out, Little. Kerr and his team brought in a profiler who'd been trained by the FBI. The profiler went through boxes and boxes of files pertaining to Alberta's case. What the profiler came up with bolstered two of Kerr's suspicions. First, that Alberta had not been the victim of a serial killer. Kerr told the CBC podcast, I believe this was a one-off. I believe the person that did it, I think it was a... I don't think it was ever intended to happen. I think it was just something that got out of hand. Alberta was a young, very attractive girl. Um, I think it was just something that kind of went from maybe having some fun or a few laughs to like, my God, what have I done? Now I have to do something because you can't tell. You can't ever tell anybody what I did. That's, that's what I believe. And second, that Jack Little deserved another round of questioning. But once Alberta's body was found, Jack apparently had decided he didn't have anything else to say to police. Kerr said Jack... Chose not to speak with us, I guess, might be the best way to put it. And that raised, it, it still raises huge, again, red flags, if you will. Another officer on Alberta's case, Rick Ross, not the rapper, told the CBC podcast that they'd pretty much zoned in on Jack Little within the first 24 hours, which only further highlights how strange it was that they didn't even interview him for nearly two weeks. Look, I'm no RCMP officer, but what the hell took them so long? If they had even a hint of suspicion, why didn't they talk to him right away? At the very least, it would have been a lot harder for him to pull off the whole I don't remember nonsense. Like, you're telling us you don't remember if Alberta was at your house less than two days ago? I suppose if he did try to pull that, they might have been like, well, then you must have been blackout drunk, in which case it's completely possible that you also don't remember murdering her. It might be that Ross meant within 24 hours of Alberta's body being found rather than within 24 hours of her going missing, but it's very confusing. He told the CBC podcast, 
Like, why wouldn't an uncle want to talk to you right away, right? Uh, he was the last person who'd seen her, right? You know, family member that saw her at his house the night before. Yeah, there should have been 110% cooperation, and we didn't get that. So right away, our antennas went up, right? Uh, there's something not right here, right? Of course, almost 30 years had passed by the time he was being interviewed for the podcast, and I'll allow that maybe some memories are foggy, but this seems like an important detail. It just sort of feels like there's a puzzle piece missing here, somehow. Alberta's case stalled out in part because of lack of evidence, lack of cooperation on the part of witnesses, and lack of resources. Kerr said, But I guess being realistic about it, it's like, you know, when we speak to you of the Highway of Tears, you know, all the missing and murdered women that have, again, it's unfortunately there's another murder and then another murder and then another murder and then... (laughs) You hate to say it, but that's the truth. I mean, there just simply isn't the resources. Look, I'm no good with numbers. I have never made a household budget. I just kind of fly by the seat of my pants and hope for the best. But I do pay attention to where tax money goes, and I'm willing to bet that the resources are there if we just move some things around a little. I'm just saying, where there's a will, there's a couple thousand extra dollars. Also, you know, not for nothing, but resources are actually needed long before a woman ends up murdered and dumped on a highway. Spend the money up front, you see, and you won't have to spend as much later on. But <laughs> what do I know? Alberta's sister Karen told the paper The Province in 2010 that she thinks the police just didn't see her sister's death as a priority. She said, They didn't put a picture of her in the media for seven days. I asked my father why, and he just cried. In 2005, the RCMP formed a task force called EPANA to reinvestigate cold cases of missing and murdered women along the Highway of Tears. Panna is the Inuit spirit goddess who protects souls just before they go to heaven or are reincarnated. The E stands for the division that called for the task force to be formed. When the task force took over the cases in 2006, their caseload doubled within a year, bringing the number of unsolved murders to 13 and unsolved missing cases to five. Alberta's case was one of the 13. Though many believe that at least some of the women murdered or who went missing along the Highway of Tears were victims of a serial killer, Alberta's family remains certain she was not. By 2009, 20 years after Alberta was murdered, Both of her parents had died without any kind of answers about their daughter's death, and her siblings and other loved ones continued to raise awareness about Alberta, passing out flyers every year on the anniversary. Their hope is that time might have weighed enough on someone's conscience to come forward with any information they might have. And then, in August of 2016, after years of activists calling for an official national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous girls and women, the Canadian government finally launched the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, committing almost $54 million to the two-year initiative. In June of 2017, Alberta's sister Claudia and former RCMP detective Gary Kerr both testified at the inquiry. About a year and a half earlier, Kerr had sent an anonymous email to CBC journalist Connie Walker, 
Presumably, the subject line was Alberta Williams, but Walker never specifies that. What she did say on her podcast was, I didn't recognize the sender, but the subject jumped out at me right away. Intrigued, I clicked it open. I still get chills when I think about what it said. The email was just one sentence long and read, quote, She was killed by, name redacted, end quote. That email sent Walker and her producer, Marnie Luke, on their own investigation. Presumably, that redacted name was Jack Little, because as Walker and Luke investigated, they uncovered information that further implicated him. Apparently, Alberta's cousins, Yvonne and Amanda, said Alberta showed up at their place asking to borrow $20 in Terrence, British Columbia, more than an hour's drive from Prince Rupert on Saturday, August 26th, the day after she'd last been seen at Bogie's Bar. Yvonne told Walker that Alberta arrived in a black pickup truck and was with two men, Jack Little and another man who was Alberta's sister's boyfriend, who apparently Yvonne did not know by name, but she did know that at the time he was a taxi driver. She also said her sister Amanda knew more. When Walker and Luke called on Amanda, she wasn't home. Her husband Ed, though, said that Alberta, Jack, and some other guy showed up at their door around dinnertime on Saturday, August 26th, asking to borrow $20. They were in a hurry because the other passenger in the truck had to make it to his shift driving a taxi in Prince Rupert. When Walker and Luke did manage to get in touch with Amanda, she was still scared to talk about whatever happened that evening. All she would say was that she recognized the other passenger as a taxi driver in Prince Rupert and that Alberta was apparently so intoxicated they had to help her get back into the truck. And, like, I don't want to throw shade on a shitty decision made more than 30 years ago, but please, if you see a woman who is that intoxicated, maybe don't let her ride off in a truck with a man you don't know, or even with a man you do know. Just, like, insist she come in and have some water and rest, and then call her family. Kathy, Alberta's sister, whose boyfriend at the time was the cab driver with the truck, said she still wasn't ready to talk about her sister's murder, which is, frankly, a little red flaggy. I mean, 27 years had passed by this point. But she gave Walker and Luke her now ex-boyfriend's name, Ken Collinson, and when they tracked him down, He insisted he hadn't been with Jack and Alberta in the truck that Saturday evening, but he did know Jack and for some reason hadn't spoken to him since the weekend Alberta went missing. And sure, I'm no homicide investigator, but when a man who's been named to have been seen with a woman who turned up dead a couple weeks later, or at the very least whose truck was named as having been seen with a woman who turned up dead a couple weeks later, says that yes, he knows the lead suspect in the woman's murder, but just hasn't happened to talk to him since the last time witnesses said they saw him with him, or at least saw him in his truck? I mean, come on. I know that's all circumstantial, but those are some pretty solid circumstances. At the very least, explain why you so suddenly stopped speaking to your old pal Jack. To this day, Alberta's case still hasn't been solved. 
As of 2016, at least, it was still considered an active investigation. There is a chance with advancements in DNA forensics that something might come of whatever DNA evidence investigators might have, if they have any. Officers wouldn't confirm one way or the other. Detective Kerr is still sure that Jack Little is at least partly responsible for Alberta's death, and he feels confident that the case is solvable. But as of yet, in July of 2023, there's still no justice for Alberta. On the other hand, some progress overall has been made. In 2019, the Canadian National Inquiry released their final report of their investigation titled Reclaiming Power and Place. According to the piece on Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, after more than two years of testimony from Indigenous knowledge keepers, experts, and 1,484 survivors and family members of the missing and murdered, in addition to cross-Canada public hearings and evidence gathering from many Indigenous and non-Indigenous groups and individuals, end quote, Chief Commissioner Marion Bueller announced, quote, despite their different circumstances and backgrounds, all of the missing and murdered are connected by economic, social, and political marginalization, racism, and misogyny woven into the fabric of Canadian society. The hard truth is that we live in a country whose laws and institutions perpetuate violations of fundamental rights, amounting to a genocide against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual people, end quote. The final report included this lofty goal, quote, to put an end to this tragedy, the rightful power and place of women, girls, and 2SLGBTQQIA people must be reinstated, which requires dismantling the structures of colonialism within Canadian society, end quote. And Commissioner Kajak Robinson commented, quote, Ending this genocide and rebuilding Canada into a decolonized nation requires a new relationship and an equal partnership between all Canadians and Indigenous peoples. I hope that the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls can be a tool to do just that. End quote. I mean, that all sounds great. And you can call me cynical if you want, because I absolutely am. But I'll save my rejoicing until things actually change. Though I do recognize the recent law stating that Indigenous foster children and adoptees should be adopted or fostered by fellow tribe members, which certainly chips away at one piece of the colonial structure. But rebuilding Canada, or the states for that matter, into a decolonized nation is a massive undertaking that will require the pulling apart of almost every aspect of the culture, which I am 100% in favor of. I'm just saying it's going to take a lot more than the issuing of a report. My fingers are crossed. At the very least, survivors of victims of violence toward missing and murdered Indigenous girls and women might feel that this is a huge step in the right direction. To have your government officially recognize what you've been screaming about for decades is progress. As Jeremiah Boss, widower of Daylene Boss, a woman from Onion Lake Cree Nation murdered in May 2004, put it, 
Today, I feel hopeful for the first time that as victims of violence, our words will be heard. The words of our lost ones are spoken. We will be there to represent them. They may be lost, but they are not forgotten. Now, let's hope their words are not just heard, but heeded. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. How do you know when the party is over and it's time for everyone to sober up and go home? Michael Alleg, the clown prince of club kids, clearly missed the signs. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Crystal Simmons, Ryan Garcia, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. But seriously, help counteract the people whose feelings are hurt when I criticize the police. They are vocal and unafraid of submitting those one-star reviews. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and scathing review. The name of the podcast is The Candace Owens Show. Strangers, before we go, we wanted to give you a preview of the first official Patreon episode, Succumb to the Mysteries of Sleep Paralysis. To hear the rest of the episode and the full second episode, sign up at patreon.com slash strange and unexplained. Last month, I was taking the train from Providence, Rhode Island to New York City. I was behind on work, as is often the case, so I read through the research packet for the episode I had to write that week and then got overwhelmingly tired, which is also often the case. I put my tray table down, bunched up my scarf, put my hoodie over my eyes, and laid my head down on my scarf. At some point, though, I was looking out the window, and somehow the tracks were going directly over a body of water, and I remember thinking it didn't look right and that maybe I should be scared. And then a man sat down in the seat next to me. I was vaguely aware that there had been plenty of open seats in the car when I'd fallen asleep. And also, I was still asleep. I was absolutely positive I'd been looking out the window a moment before. I am a small female-bodied person who is always at least vaguely aware of their surroundings, especially on public transport. A man sitting next to me when there are plenty of empty seats warrants concern. A man sitting next to me when there are plenty of empty seats and I'm asleep? This calls for all the alert meters to be running on high. I think he asked me something. I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't move my head. I couldn't pick my arms up off my lap. I was paralyzed. This went on for a few minutes. I put all my focus on getting my eyes open. I put all my focus into lifting my arms. I was getting increasingly embarrassed, but I also thought, why is this guy talking to me? Clearly, I'm asleep. Like, go sit somewhere else, bro. 
which made me worry. Like, seriously, bro, go sit somewhere else. I finally jerked myself awake with a violent shake. There was no one sitting next to me. The guy across the aisle from me was deep in his phone. He didn't seem to notice me violently jerking myself awake. It occurred to me that as hard as I thought I jolted myself, I don't think I actually moved at all. But I had at least succeeded in opening my eyes. It wasn't my first time experiencing sleep paralysis. It wasn't even my first time experiencing sleep paralysis in public. It was, however, my first time experiencing sleep paralysis surrounded by strangers. (laughs) 